morning is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 to 12. If you're visiting with us today, we started a series in this little epistle. We're moving through it. We actually looked at verses 9 and 10 two weeks ago, the verses on love, so I won't be preaching that portion, but I will the second uh, two verses, 11 and 12, on work. This is the word of the Lord, beloved. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. What would you do this week if you knew Jesus was returning next Sunday? You had it on good authority. The teaching of the Apostle Paul, who himself tells us he is reiterating the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the end of earth history is a breath away. What would you do? How would you maximize your precious little time left on this earth? What is your obligation to instill enthusiasm for this event of events? How about this? Quit your job. I mean, why bother working when what you produce this week will become immediately immaterial and irrelevant forever? Spread your excitement. Go get in the homes and workplaces of your friends and stir up excitement and get them enthused about the coming of Jesus. And you know, when Jesus comes again, those who are persecuting us are going to get theirs. Don't you have an obligation to stir up those kinds of emotions? with people that you know in the church. And don't worry about your finances. The deacons have a fund that will help you if you run out of money. And there's a lot of loving people in this congregation who they'll be willing in love to share their resources with you. Does that sound like a good plan? Well, apparently it did to some living in Thessalonica 2,000 years ago. And, you know, at first glance it makes sense. If you're sure the end of all things is at hand... This is no time for trivial matters. Take your job down at the wharf making beams for ships, working with, doing manual labor. That's that's sort of trivial. Carpe diem, seize the day, do what's really important, get excited about seeing Jesus face to face. And it is to this kind of thinking that is going on in the church at Thessalonica that Paul basically says, okay, okay. There's some good elements to what you're saying. But if you take all those pieces and put them together, your conclusion is not the biblical picture of the way that you're supposed to live. You have let a good thing, excitement about the second coming, the timing of which we actually do not know, you have let a good thing eclipse another good thing, 
going to work, the timing of which you are absolutely certain tomorrow morning you should go to work, and your conclusions are off. You're missing the bigger picture, beloved. We have the privilege of living moment by moment every day to the glory of God, regardless of what we do. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. That's the thing that should be motivating you. So, so the, the point behind this text is this. In everything that you do, beloved, you are a witness to God's character and your calling in the world. Everything you do witnesses to the watching world the inherent dignity of your work and the importance of self-controlled independent living, living according to your own means. So I want to progress through this text and simply ask this question with you. What makes work good? And boys and girls, ah, you heard me. Boys and girls, I realize you're not going to work tomorrow morning, but you are. When you go to school, that's your work. And when you come home from school, what work is to be done in the household? Loving your brothers and your sisters and serving mom and dad, looking for ways to make your home run better by helping mom and dad. So you are not excluded from this sermon. Yeah, the Hadid boy. Yeah, we're calling you out. Dad was. <laughs> hey. So what's your work tomorrow? It's to do your school work to the glory of God, come home from school and... Mom, how can I help? How can I help? Okay, here we go. Number one, why is work good? God created it. When you open your Bible, what's the first thing you read about? God is working. He's creating the world. He's making this world a place for us to live and enjoy Him. On the seventh day, he rested from his labors. But this God is still working, upholding the creation and working all things in earth history among his creatures for his glory and the good of his people. And the pinnacle of God's creative work is making men and women in his own image and specifically to bear the image of God as a worker. I've given you Genesis 1, verse 28. God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and every living thing that moves on the earth. This is what theologians refer to as the creation mandate. Within the pristine order of God's creation Adam and Eve and you and me have work to do. We are extending God's reign over his earth. It's a very good thing. God created work. Some of you are thinking, but Mike, you haven't been to my job. Work can be hard, boring, disappointing, frustrating, and seemingly insignificant. I hear you, brother and sister. But it's not because the nature of work is that. It's that sin has made work that. 
the curse affects our ability to fulfill the creation mandate. Look at the verse I've got for you from Genesis 3. God said to Adam and Eve, because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Why is work frustrating? Why is it hard? Why is it toilsome? Sin, not work itself. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You were dust, and to dust you shall return. Work is toilsome because of the curse. God created it. And you know, it's interesting that this passage gives you this picture of, you know, Paul says, aspire to live quietly, work with your hands. You get this image of a, of, a, of a nice place to work, of a community that has peace and good jobs and resources. And the reason I had Psalm 147 read earlier in the service is it shows the blessedness of that kind of existence. Psalm 147 Verse 13, he strengthens the bars of your gates. That is living in civil security. He blesses your children within you, and he makes peace in your borders, fills you with the finest of wheat. That sort of paradise, as best as you can get it in a cursed world, it's not wrong to desire that. But our work is, in fact, cursed. It's hard. God created it. It's good. Secondly, you benefit from it. Most of you know that work meets your physical needs. With an employer, you enter into an arrangement. For your time, your skills, and your energy, you get compensation, normally in the form of a paycheck. And with that paycheck, you put a roof over your head, you put clothes on your body, you send your kids to school, and you eat food. That's a good thing. Your income is blessed of God. That's what work should bring you. And if there's any doubt about it, God has put something in your stomach called hunger pangs. See the verse from Proverbs 16, 26? A worker's appetite works for him. His mouth urges it on. And here's what this means. When you wake up tomorrow morning and your head says, I don't want to go to work, your stomach says, Oh yeah, I want to eat. <laughs> so your appetite overcomes whatever proclivity is in you to be lazy, to cut yourself slack, etc. The Bible teaches there should be consequences for not working. Proverbs 13:25, the righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite. You know why? Because an act of righteousness it's fulfilling the creation mandate. It's going to work. It's earning an income. But the belly of the wicked suffers want. Why are the belly of the wicked um, have full of hunger pang? Because they're not doing what God's called them to do. Work as God himself as a worker. And work also meets your psychological needs. Is there not dignity in a job well done? You, you know that satisfaction. Boys and girls, you study hard for the test. It comes back with a hundred on it, and the teacher maybe puts a little smile. That's a good thing. That's a beautiful thing. Some of you produce things with your minds. You produce things with your hands. You help other people produce things. This should bring you satisfaction. 
You know, when you've done something well, is your proclivity to frown or to smile? You instinctively smile when you've done something well. You can even take pride. Bear with me now. You know how I feel about pride and humility. Preached a whole series on it. You can enjoy a sense of sweet accomplishment when God empowers you to produce something that is excellent, efficient, effective in the spirit of what Paul writes in Romans 15. I have the verse for you in the outline. He says this as he reflects on his own labors as a missionary. In Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Wait a minute. There's not a proud bone in Paul's body, is there? I have reason in Christ Jesus to be proud of my work for God. Thankful, humble satisfaction that he has been empowered by God to do something of terrible significance in this world, work as an apostle. He says, I won't venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me by the power of the Spirit of God. See, he's saving himself from sinful pride. I'm so grateful that God gave me a good week teaching, a, God, a good week as a mother, a, a good week as a nurse, a good week as a businesswoman, a good week as a scientist, a good week working for a government agency. I'm so thankful for that. And what I produced was good to the glory of God by the power of the Spirit. Don't you want everyone, everyone working in this country doing so, leaning on the Spirit of God? I wonder if we'd have cancer cured more quickly if the people doing so were asking God for the wisdom and doing so by the Spirit of God. I don't know. So there's the joy in the faithful stewardship of your gifts. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2, let a man regard us in this manner servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. And in this case, it's required that one be found trustworthy. I'll tell you something very personal about me. About three years ago, I was extremely tired. I felt like not doing any more ministry, and I, I needed a complete reboot, and I didn't know what that looked like. One of the things that drove me was a God-given sense of wanting to be a steward of the gifts God's given me, that one day I will stand before Jesus, and he'll say, I gave you health, I gave you a sound mind, I gave you gifts. Did you use them as a faithful steward to the best of your ability. That reality helped me and propelled me on and led me to do interims. Thank you for having me, beloved congregation. Thank you. And this is why people who know God seek to do things excellently. They want to reflect the image of the God who does all things well. So no wonder Proverbs says, the precious possession of a man is diligence. Not drivenness. People who are driven have too much to prove about themselves. Diligence is a gift that says, I want you glorified through my best efforts. Paul says in Romans 12, to the body of Christ not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And it's with that biblical view of work that Paul writes in Colossians 3, whatever you do, sweeping floors, 
flipping hamburgers, teaching at the university, in fine, whatever it is, do it for the Lord, not for men. That means that you can have a really nasty boss and know that when you work for Jesus, it ultimately doesn't matter how that person treats you. Because you did it for Jesus. You're serving the Lord Christ. Now apparently some at Thessalonica didn't get this memo. <laughs> or they got it, and they weren't heeding it. So look with me at the verse from 2 Thessalonians. Paul needed to write again to correct a situation. It's the people that I talked about at the beginning of the sermon. Jesus is coming next week. Stop working, start meddling, and you'll support me if I need money. That's what was happening there. And here's what he writes in 2 Thessalonians. Verse 6. Now we command you. Let's get a little stronger now. We command you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you receive from us. See, that tells you that when Paul preached there, he preached Jesus and he preached a way of honoring Jesus in the way you live. Namely, you go to work Monday morning. That was part of his message. You receive that tradition from us. You yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we didn't have the right. See, as an apostle, Paul had the right to walk in and say, cough it up, meet my needs, I'm an apostle, the laborer's worthy of his wages, don't muzzle the ox while he's threshing, pay up. He had every right to do that. He refused it. So what happens when Paul walks into Thessalonica for the first time? Where does he go first? Remember about six or eight sermons ago? Where does he go first? The synagogue. Why? What's he want to do? Find common ground. This is going to be preaching outpost number one. He goes to the synagogue. Let's So he gets there too. He's there till five. Where does he go next? He starts networking. Hey, where's the tent maker? Where's the tent maker's job? Do you know where the tent maker is? Yeah, yeah there's one down on Main Street. Okay, see, straight to the tent maker's. Would you hire me? I don't know how long I'm going to... I promise you I'll work day and night. I'll work hard. I'm going to work... See, look. See these hands? These are tent makers' hands. Can't you tell? I sure can. You're hired. The first thing he does after he preaches is he gets a job. Because he doesn't want the people in the church to be inconvenienced, as it were, by having to give up their money to support him. That's what he does. And he says, this serves as an example for you. An example. This is the way you use your time, your gifts, your talents. And then he goes on, when we were with you, we gave you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, he shouldn't eat. Assuming that he's able to work. Some people, you're on disability, you can't work. Thank the Lord that we have safety nets in our culture that understand this reality. But if you are able to work, you know someone who's able to work, who's not working, you don't bail them out. You let their hunger pangs drive them to a job. That's what he's saying. Tough love? Is that tough love? Yes. But it's incredibly, incredibly wise. He says, we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Though they're occupied, they're just not doing the right thing. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. So now you see there's two forms of laziness. Doing what you shouldn't do or not doing what you should do. And in either case, what's at the heart of sloth is a failure to do what God has called you to do. Some of you are too busy. 
you're not making time for your kids. Sloth. Some of us aren't loving our spouse as well. That's part of our work, isn't it? If we're married, that's part of our work. That's sloth. It's a failure to do what God has called you to do. Third reason why work is good. Others benefit from it. Amazing verse in Proverbs 11. One gives freely, like grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give, only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched. The one who waters will himself be watered. Here's what's really humbling about being a pastor. You all go to work. You work hard. And you take seriously the biblical privilege of giving. And you give your money to the church, which supports my income. It's very humbling. I'm so grateful that you work hard so you can give. Look at everything you see around here. This did not come from our presbytery. This did not come from our government, nor should it have. This came from the faithful giving of people who worked hard and had income to not only feed their family, but give to the church. There's something quite glorious about that, isn't there? Others benefit from it. Then look at verse 26 of Proverbs 11. The people curse him who holds back grain. Blessing on, is on the one who, one who sells it. That means that there is a God-given responsibility if you are in commerce to do commerce well for the benefit of other people. That's what that verse seems to be saying. And so to not work is to cheat other people of the blessing that would come from your work. I was playing golf one time in Texas and was playing with this guy who's getting in and out of this golf cart and we're going on playing. And I try to get to know the people that I golf with for the gospel's sake. And at some point I said, well, what do you do? He said, I'm on disability. Wait. You're healthy enough to get in and out of a golf cart and play golf and yet you're taking my tax dollars and you won't work, I can tell you I wasn't very happy. Some people need to be on disability. They do. Of course they do. This guy? I wanted to punch him in the face. Sorry, that's probably not the Christian thing to do. (laughs) And then he said something nasty about my Jesus about the 16th hole, and I didn't like that at all. He did. It was not good. God wants, where he plants his people, he wants them to bless the community they live in, not least through their labors. You're probably familiar with Jeremiah 29.7. Israel is the last place they want to be, in exile in Babylon. What should their attitude be? We're just going to ride this sucker out and get back to our homeland as soon as we can. No! God says this, Seek the welfare of the city in which I've sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. That is the vision of Christians who are technically exiles and strangers in this earth, that where God has planted us, we want the welfare of the city. We want College Park to say, if this church ever was dissolved and went away, we want College Park to weep and mourn and dressed in black and tears because Wallace is no longer here. What a great loss for the city. That's the kind of blessing we want to be. Fourth reason work is good. Outsiders will respect you. Now, we don't do things to get the approval of outsiders, but we are painfully aware that what we do may incur their scorn. Because the way you work or the way you don't work says something about your religion. Oh, 
What kind of God is it whose followers are lazy and leeches and just don't pull their weight? That's what Paul is saying. There's uh, any of you who are followers of the NFL for any length of time, the National Football League, know that there's one wide receiver, I'm not going to name him, but a wide receiver who's known as a loafer. And you can see when the camera shows the play, if the play is going to the other side, this guy lines up over here and he just stands there. He does nothing. You all know who I'm talking about? Yeah. And even the commentators call him out, you know, from the sports desk and everything. It's like he's just, I'm, if the play's going that way, I'm just going to stand here. What he should do is run his pattern and... But even, even his peers find that distasteful. Outsiders will respect you. Number five, your work is good because your independence spares others the burden of supporting you. That's why verse 12 says, be dependent on no one. What's the context for these four verses? Love. What does love do? Love asks the question, what is good for you? I always want to produce, pr- promote what is good for you. It isn't good for you if I'm lazy and knocking on your back door saying, feed me. That's not good for you because I'm depriving you of your hard-earned resources due to my laziness. That is not love. Nor would it be love for you to open the door and feed me if I'm not willing to work because that's not good for me. You see? So ultimately, this is about how we love one another. Finally, oh, let me just say this on this point before we go to the last point. Implicit in this is the call to live within your means. Banks in our country have made it very easy to get these plastic things that are about three inches by one and a half inches called credit cards. And it's very easy to swipe and buy things you cannot pay for. It is a sin to live beyond the income God has given you except for unforeseen circumstances like medical and this and that. We have enormous amounts of sinfully accrued debt among people in our culture. And it's ultimately pride. I deserve a better standard of living than my income has allowed me to do. Live within your means. When I do premarriage counseling, we get to the chapter on money, I tell them, how are you going to do your finances? We're going to give tenths to the Lord and we're going to have a budget. We're going to stick to it. Check, check, check. Yes. Live within your means. And then when you do, you have the privilege of sharing those means with others as they have need and sharing with the church. Last point. Why is work good? It reveals the glory of Christ's ambition. You may know that Jesus was born into a carpenter's home. That means probably at about age 12, he, went, he, uh, he stopped going to school. That was his work. And he joined dad in the wood shop. And for 18 more years, he began his public ministry at age 30. For 18 years, he handled wood. Measured, cut, lifted, handled wood in his hands. And at a moment in time at age 30, he set that wood aside. And he started an ambitious course to do the work of Savior of God's people. And absolutely nothing 
Not a molecule in his body, not a nanosecond of time kept Jesus from doing exactly what God his Father sent him to do. Listen to some of the phrases that are used in the Gospels to describe Christ's undeterred ambition. I must be about my Father's business. I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Now that was Jesus being identified with our sins on the cross. That was his baptism. He says, I lay my life down of my own accord. No one takes it from me. And how about this one from Luke 9.51? He set his face to go to Jerusalem. If you just run a word study in your uh, Bible gateway on Jerusalem, 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 that was Jesus' destiny. Jerusalem, I'm going to Jerusalem because it was in Jerusalem that Jesus took up wood again. But not to hold in his hands, but to be nailed to it. And being nailed to that wood, this Jesus would suffer immeasurable torments of body and soul as his Father poured out the wrath your sins deserved into the body of his Son. And somehow, the ambition of Jesus to suffer, to die, literally suffocate under the weight right, of nailing on a cross, to win for you salvation, forgiveness, grace, unending mercy, freedom from needing to prove anything to God or anybody else. And with that gospel power, the power of the cross in your heart, you're now free to give it all for God because you have nothing to lose and nothing to gain. You're absolutely safe and secure in the hands of the most ambitious man that ever lived. But don't miss the goal. It was the cross. And that therefore humbles us to say, yes, I will do everything to the glory of God. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. That becomes our food, as it were, in just a moment. Let's pray. We worship you, our King, Lord Jesus, for your undeterred determination and ambition to go to the cross for us. What a glory. What pain. What suffering. What agony. But you did it to win us, to rescue us, to, to free us, not to be idle with our time, but to be terribly intentional about what we do as a response to this unshakable salvation. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for this beloved congregation, for their labors, all the different things you've called them to do. How wonderful. We pray for our youth that they will find that place of satisfaction serving you in this world, whatever it is, and do it as unto the Lord with joy, knowing it is the Lord Christ whom they serve. Why wouldn't we serve you, Jesus, for the way you served us in your glorious death, resurrection, and now ever living to serve and to pray for our welfare? Pray in your name. Let's respond, beloved.